this way the strangest sights on the island. Bricks from the four corners of the world. What two nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar. We've got the show if you've got the dime. Other popular attractions included a mermaid from Fiji, a knitting machine operated by a dog, a bearded girl, the original Siamese twin, and playing to the growing national obsession with the question of race and origins, an 18-year-old microcephalic black man from Georgia, whom Barnum presented simply as the what is it. March 2nd, Friday. Stopped at Barnum's on my way downtown to see the much advertised what is it. Some say it's an advanced chimpanzee. His anatomical details are fearfully simian, a great fact for Darwin. George Templeton Strong. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Grab a star by the tail. Take a trip to the moon. Looker, looker, looker. Okay, so I heard so we're on the bus. My dad to go to Dallas for one time. When I was little, uh, my dad a, ran when I was little, my dad church. Yeah. Story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again and what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Now this week we're doing something a little different. Something that has definitely gone down in American history and has really become legendary. It's not the subject of one urban legend. It was the birthplace of a lot of them, though. Oh, definitely. And the birthplace of stories you tell in the dark at night, around campfires, at sleepover parties. Right, and it's not a haunted house. It's not a creepy movie you saw. It's not something you overheard in class. It's something you saw with your own eyes. And you never would have believed it had you not. It was the amazing, mysterious, marvelous, unbelievable American Dime Dime Museum. Museum. Now, I know most of you are not familiar with what a dime is, but in the past when we had paper money, we also had things called coins. And there were coins valued at 10 cents each, and those were called dimes. And in the past, they used to allow you to do things. Now I know they're just, you know, what holds your sofa together uh, under your couch cushions along with crayons and probably some hair ties. I think that's your couch. Oh no, that's everyone's couch, I promise. Maybe a candy wrapper or two. So the Dime Museum really started back in the 1800s when people had parlors and people of a wealthier class and they would display different oddities that they had. And some of these were natural oddities. Mm-hmm. Some of these were fabricated oddities. Uh-huh. And some of these things just had an interesting story. Well, what a novel concept. And there was also something very popular at that time called the Wonder Cabinet. Right, and that's German, so it's a Wunderkabinet. But I wasn't going to try. These are small little curio cabinets. Your grandmother still had one. And it's where mm-hmm. she puts her knickknacks. You know, the, her lighthouse collection and your uncle's bronzed baby booties might be in there. Right, but at that time it really had a lot of more 
I saw one, and it was covered in shells. Ooh, cool. Yeah, or just different things like that. So just weirdness. It was just like weird little crafty projects of the antebellum and Victorian period. Exactly. And the weirder it was, the cooler it was. Definitely. It was something that you would bring out at a party. You know, you had your okay. friends over. You'd bring out the Wonder Cabinet mm-hmm. and show them all these oddities that you've collected. So how did this kind of become a museum? How did we transition from a cabinet to an entire dedicated facility? That's a good question. It's actually a pretty uniquely American story. Right. There have definitely been oddities displayed throughout the world Mm -hmm. for millennia. Yes. But the concept of a museum full of curious and fascinating objects is something that we can claim... As a pretty American idea. Woohoo! Yay! I love that that's our idea. We have like that and craft craft mac and cheese. Yeah. And not cheese. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, like slaughtering native people. Oh, wait, everyone's done that. Yeah, come on. The first museum ever built in America was built by a man named Charles Wilson Peel. And he didn't set out to build a museum. In fact, he didn't set out to do any of this. He was. Born in 1741, he was an artist, as well as a scientist, and a naturalist. I know that's what you've always wanted to be when you grew up. It really is. I think that I was born to be a naturalist. (laughs) Just like 200 years too late, yeah. So he was actually a revolutionary. In what way? Well, he was very ahead of his time, but also he was a Revolutionary War soldier, so that kind of works two ways. And he met a lot of major generals during his time um, as a soldier. And he went on to paint them. And this included Washington and other famous men. He served in the state legislature for Pennsylvania as well. So he kind of started, as we talked about, he had his parlor where he had a lot of of his paintings. Um, He also was doing some naturalist artwork of a mammoth bone he was sent from Kentucky. How kind of those Kentuckians to send this man their mammoth bones. People kept coming and wanting to visit him to see all of his things he was collecting. So, if you're a pretty bright guy, and people are just, you know, knocking on your door constantly wanting to see your mammoth bone, no bad jokes. Aww. What are you going to do? Well, he had the idea to actually build a dedicated building to these things. Right. So, he set up the first American museum, the first building built for the purpose of housing artifacts to display for public exhibition in the United States. Right, it was the Philadelphia Museum, also called the Peel Museum. And it was not your traditional dime museum. He really did set out to educate the public, to start discussions about society and art and things like that. But as him being the only museum, people started sending him stuff. What kind of stuff? All sorts of things. Weird stuff? Yes. And good stuff. And real naturalist objects. And he amassed this really interesting collection. Also would have shows and things like that at his museum. Now remember that he wanted to educate the public because it's going to be a very important through line as we continue our discussion. And so as time went on, through the 1800s, you continued to have more and more dime museums popping up. And I'm going to jump a little ahead in time to New Orleans. Well, I always want to jump to New Orleans, so I'll go with you. And this is where Eugene Robinson had his dime museum. 
And it was a five-story building on Canal Street, which is one of the main thoroughfares in New Orleans, one of the borders of the French Quarter. For those that have stumbled out of Bourbon Street, there, there you go. That's it. Yeah, remember that time that you walked out and you're like, oh my god, modern buildings. Ah, I need to go back to the quarter. You were on Canal Street. If you go the other way, there's a creepy haunted monastery. Yeah, don't go that way. <laughs> He had some great ads advertising things like fat ladies, living skeletons, bearded women, Siamese twins, gorillas, dwarves, giants, novel mechanical inventions. And on the ground floor of his five-story building, he had a theater, which kind of constantly ran vaudeville shows. And this was very common at that time. You would have theaters in these museums, different sorts of shows, but most commonly vaudeville. And a lot of famous vaudeville stars got their start touring these different museums, such as... Oh, Harry Houdini. Houdini was a a fixture on the vaudeville or dime museum circuit. For more information on Harry Houdini, see the episode (laughs) Ouija. And so he had a brilliant idea that he was going to build two huge, gaudy showboats along Ah. the Mississippi River. So, is this where the term showboating comes from? It's not. There actually were showboats before this. Um, But he was one of the first people to popularize it, but there were bands that had showboats before he started. He called them Robinson's Floating Palaces, Museums, Menagerie, and Aquarium. And the other one was a large opera house. Oh, how fancy. Yeah, because opera at the time was extremely popular. You can actually go to some really small towns in Louisiana, Texas, other southern cities or towns, and they actually have opera houses. Yeah, that's true in the on the West Coast as well. A lot of the little mining towns and things that were set up would have a, like a bank, a jail, and an opera house. So that's and a saloon. Cool. Yeah, and a saloon. But one of the really interesting things about Eugene Robinson's museums is that they were in New Orleans, like I said, 1880s, and he employed a lot of local musicians to play at his museums. He would set them up outside, and they would be your tees. Like, if we've got this out here, imagine what we've got inside, boys. And he would hire a lot of local black musicians to play this new type of music they were playing. Oh, I think I know where this is going. You know, it didn't have a name yet. It was not categorized. One of the first instances of this public display of jazz music. Which we are still doing in New Orleans, if anyone's interested. There's a great, I guess you can call it a political cartoon, from one of the local papers at the time, showing this extremely racist character jazz band playing at the museum. And all of the fine citizens of New Orleans covering their ears, begging them to stop. And having people with donkey heads and bird heads was the only ones going into the museum. Why would they be donkeys and birds? Jackasses. And why the birds? Just bird-brained. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That is my own interpretation. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's um, some historical scholarship right there, folks. But it's interesting because you just see what a cultural impact these museums had at the time. Right. And something you mentioned to me earlier... Through Eugene Robinson, we get the first instance of writings of jazz music. What do you call that? Right, it is the first kind of mentioning, the first images of jazz musicians are like those cartoons. Okay. So making fun of them, but still historically relevant. And interesting. Yeah. Um, And because before this, that kind of music and the ragtime piano play was all done in brothels, like on 
in Storyville, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. So, so far, we've created the first dedicated museum on American soil and made a public record of jazz music for the first time. And we've only gone through two museums. How much more could there be? Well, there are several other museums that had <clears throat> interesting history and developed that dime museum kind of motif. But the most famous being... P.T. Barnum's museum. Does that name sound familiar? P.T. Barnum, yes. P.T. Barnum. Oof. He was an American showman. He's responsible for pioneering the circus. Uh, He's also responsible for a hefty autobiography, which I have yet to work my way through. Still cited as an important influence on capitalism and advertising. Right, his advertising was amazing. And he's also responsible for coining the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. He was here as such a great elocutioner. So his real name was Phineas Taylor Barnum. And it makes me very angry that he didn't actually use the name Phineas. But he got his start as a showman with different acts like elephants. He eventually purchased the Scudder's Dime Museum in 1841 in New York on Broadway. Nice location. And he transformed it into one of the most popular things in the country. It truly was. People traveled from everywhere to visit, and it was a very popular form of entertainment with a lot of repeat visitors. It wasn't like, oh, well, I've seen what's there. I'm not going to bother going back. There was always a new exhibition. Yeah, he would change things all the time. In 1850, he actually bought the Peel's Museum collection. Oh, Charles, why did they sell it? Because his he died, his sons took over, and I guess they didn't do a great job. Okay. Oh, poor Peel. He continually added things to his exhibits all the time. One great quote from his autobiography, the transient attractions of the museum were constantly diversified and educated dogs, industrious fleas, automatons, jugglers, ventriloquists, living statuary, tableau, gypsies, albinos, fat boys, giant stores, rope dancers, live Yankees, pantomime, Instrumental music, singing and dancing in great variety, dioramas, panoramas, models of Niagara, Dublin, Paris, and Jerusalem, Hennington's dioramas of the creation, the deluge, the fairy grotto, Storm at sea, the first English punch and judy in the country, Italian fantoccini, mechanical figures, fancy glass blowing, knitting machines, and other triumphs in the mechanical arts. Dissolving views, American Indians who enacted their warlike and religious ceremonies on the stage. These, among others, were all exceedingly successful. Humility. I mean, that's the word that comes to mind here. Humility. Oh, yeah, definitely. And like you said, his advertisements were always great. Always coming up with great names for these things that he had in his museum. And these descriptions that would just draw you right in. Right, and he could take anything and bill it as a wonder of the world, it seems. He could. He was a chronic overbiller. He would take something that was moderately interesting and hype it up to the point that no one could spare the curiosity and they would have to go take a look at it. It was something he was very good at. He is credited as a pioneer of lowbrow entertainment. A lot of people had a problem with that. Like who? Like everyone. A lot of news editors would constantly publish letters that were anonymous and editorials against this lewd and lascivious yes things that he was doing in his museum and it was great because he would write back of course because he yeah to the paper and he'd publish big ads against this and saying that he was really just educating the public well he kind of was 
There were things that you could see there that you couldn't see anywhere else in the world, for sure. I think some horizons were definitely broadened. Um, one term that comes to mind is edutainment. Edutainment? Well, that is the con- the consummate mishmashing of words. You know, like, Benefer. So he was like, it was like a celebrity couple. It was like a celebrity couple. He believed that he was combining education with entertainment. He was making things more palatable to the casual observer. He brought in specimens for public viewing that really did introduce new ways of thinking about animals and people and cultures and even though the things he presented sometimes were extremely biased of course they were he of course had vaudeville on his stage and i guess we should talk about the american museum itself was a huge building yes that had just displays and displays and floors and floors of things on the bottom of it was a large stage where like i said he'd somehow sometimes have vaudeville acts but he also would put on plays Right, and not just any place. He would do moral plays at some points. He did a version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right, at the time, there was no copyright laws on this, and so they could kind of do whatever they wanted. And so he took this this great abolitionist work, and, you know, kind of edited it a little bit, and undercut the novel's abolitionist politics, and made it more promoting sectional compromise. Oh, how interesting. Good job, PT. Well done there. So these were not just large societal thou shalt not kill morality plays. These were propaganda for morality, according to PT Barnum, in essence. Oh, definitely. And one specific instance that I think is kind of amazing that just shows that he was not afraid to put his bias into the edutainment that he presented um, occurred in 1849 when he put on the play The Drunkard. Or the fallen saved. And it was staged, you know, in the museum and a bunch of men left to go to a saloon during intermission, which was very common at the time. And when they returned, he had them pay a second admission. And this was something that he talked about all the time because people would say this was just, you know, low brow and people were going and getting drunk and looking at these things and he said, No, I only serve ice water in my museum and it's available on every floor. And anyone that leaves to go get a drink has to pay again. Such a good-natured fellow, making people pay again if they want to drink. <laughs> good morals. This was not done in New Orleans. He did other plays, too, that weren't just moral stories, such as one called The Ring of Fate. It was a fairy show. Oh, what's a fairy show? It was really popular at the time, and it just featured supernatural spectacles and would use really state-of-the-art stage effects. And, you know, like smoke and explosions and calcium and gas effects. And and to go along with these kind of morality issues, he always talked about how he also talked about religion in his museum and history. How good of him. And he would have large dioramas set up with wax mannequins. Right. He mentions in his little quote that we read earlier that he had the creation. Mm-hmm. I'd love to his, see that. I know. I know. All I can think is, oh. It's got to be so not PC. Right, and he had, like, The Last Supper, The Birth and the Trial of Christ, Christ on the Cross, things like that. At one time, around the end of the Civil War, whenever Jefferson Davis, the... President of the Confederate States of America. Whenever... During the War of Northern Aggression. I'm joking. Whenever he was said to have been captured, he was supposedly hiding in his 
wife's dress. Oh, so he's in disguise. Yes. Okay, so this is Civil War gossip. We're repeating it pretty this many much years is. later. Okay, yes. good job, P.T. And so P.T. Barnum had a wax mannequin of Jefferson Davis made up in a dress and called it the Bell of Richmond. That's amazing, one. And two, Barnum was all about current events. He loved to take anything that was very popular in the headlines and put it on display in his museum. And one popular feature of the museum was a rogues gallery, in essence. Now, I personally was familiar with the term rogues gallery from being a comic book reader. Batman. And thinking (laughs) of Batman and how he has the best rogues gallery. And I always thought it was just like a pantheon of villains, and that's pretty much exactly what it was. Um, He would take famous criminals and either have grisly artifacts from their crimes or have them made up in wax and put on display. And there was one case he did this with called the Guldenschupa murder. And it was this murder that was headline news in heyday of yellow journalism. As the trial was going on, so incredibly prejudicial material, you have to understand, he showcased the man and woman who were accused of this murder enacting it, as it was described in the papers, in full-size wax figures. No bias. So he puts these out, and the trial goes on, and they're found guilty, and the male murderer is sent to the electric chair. So what do you do with these figures after it's out of the headlines? Melt them down. No! Well, maybe. He actually took the male figure and repositioned him in the electric chair and had that on display for (laughs) a while. (laughs) Nice. That's good. So he was all about the rogues gallery, all about current events, but he wasn't just interested in the headline news. He also had a passion for the sciences. We're in one place he connected history and science was that he actually had on display a collection, one could say, which is a terrible term, but what he called it, of Native Americans from Iowa. Oh. And they would enact things. And it said that at this time is really whenever Native Americans went from being a threat to more of a curiosity. Oh. P.T., P.T., P.T. And plenty of dime museums had similar things like this, like having African natives come over. And you can think of some of the uh, times at the World's Fairs where this was done, too. Mm-hmm. Which, do you know where the term hot dog comes from? Mm, do I want to? From the St. Louis World's Fair. Okay. Where they had a native tribe. Oh, God, I think it's in the Philippines. I'm sorry if that's wrong. And it was rumored... That they ate dogs, and that's where it came from. Oh. Also where the waffle cone comes from. Oh, yay. That's another American thing. Hot dogs, waffle cones. There we go. Things we Prejudice. did. Prejudice. Uh, that's not American. No. <laughs> we're just really good at it. We're, we're varsity level. Another interesting thing that P.T. Barnum did, and I will update this as I go on because there is new development here. He was not just into exploiting people. He adored exploiting animals. Of course. He had plenty of taxidermy animals Mm. from all over the world, but he also had animals live. Alive. And that was always on the poster for all these freaks and natural oddities and things like that. Big alive on it. Yeah, like we would say live now, and it's just funny. But I think it's an important note because a lot of the time, these were stuff. Even the people would be like wax cast or whatever. But he had real live whales. What? 
kept in a large aquarium in the basement of the museum. Well, he had a full zoo inside yeah. the museum. He was like the original blackfish. Oh, God, you're right. God, he started so many American traditions, this man. I heard the other day on NPR that Barnum and Bailey is officially getting rid of their elephants. True, and it's very interesting because Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus comes from PT. And yeah, this PT is, Barnum is one of the founders. Right, so this is the the lineage, the heritage, if you will, of animal exploitation in this country, and this is kind of where it starts. So he had animals kept indoors in this museum, not on the ground floor, which I think is amazing. How did they get them up there? Well, they had things like live kangaroos, so I guess they would just, you know, hop up the stairs. So they had hippos, elephants, of course, kangaroos, alligators, and actually this argument with ASPCA has been going on since the organization was founded. Right, he had a very public debate with the founder of the ASPCA, Henry Burr, and it was about his live feeding of rabbits to the pythons on exhibit. I thought this was just cruel and unusual. People still feed snakes live rats and stuff, though. I feel like that's straining out gnats and swallowing camels at that point. He has whales inside. Yeah, well, and actually, P.T. Barnum kind of pointed that out, like how ridiculous this was. And he was feeding a snake that normally eats rabbits this, and how this just kind of points to how ridiculous Burr was. There's some great articles all published in the papers of the time with them arguing over it in letters. It sounds fabulous. It sounds like Conan Doyle, Houdini caliber fisticuffs. Oh, yeah. There wouldn't be no fisticuffs. I'm sure he was a pacifist. (laughs) Other things that Barnum said were science that he displayed was something like phrenology. Mm. Phrenology was a science at that time where people would touch your skull while, while you were still alive and it was still attached to the rest of your body and functioning and living and things. And they would go over the bumps in the regions of your skull and feel the different areas and tell you about your personality and character. Now, there's a branch of this that was popularized around the time that Darwin was publishing his books on evolution that cited that different races from different areas had different character, and people believed that you could look at someone's face and tell whether or not they were a criminal, or, you know, if they had good upstanding character, or things like that, and so there was a facial component of phrenology, and there was also, like, the cranial phrenology. Yeah, another great tool to use to keep people down, and prejudice, and racism... Yeah, and uh, if you read any of the historical reports on Jack the Ripper, you can see a lot of this kind of thing happening, where people are, like, reading about what he's done and guessing what he looks like. And this is another... I mean, this happens in criminal cases everywhere. It's just one where it's prevalent. And they're like, he would have to have bulging eyes and blah, blah, blah. Basically describing a a monster. Yeah, a big... um, Glabella. Yeah, which is like the frontal ridge where your eyebrow is. He's got to have shifty eyes and all this stuff. Making inferences about what people will look like based on what they do. Really weird... Which not is forensic, no not in scientific, not real thing that people did for a long time. Other things that P.T. Barnum helped popularize, but did not invent at all, were the gaffs. Right, yes, gaffs. So, this is a very legitimate definition, as I have looked it up on shockedandamazed.com, sideshow terminology. And it's in an article about 
carny lingo. A gaff on that site is defined as, in the broad sense, anything controlled or faked. A gaffed game, for example, would be one where it would be nearly impossible for the patron to win unless the operator let him. In the case of freak animals and human oddities as well, on occasion, for example, a gaff would not be a genuine freak of nature, regardless of how convincing it looked, but a specimen manufactured to look freakish. And the most famous gaff that P.T. Barnum created was the Fiji mermaid. A mermaid? A real one. Really? Made of a fish and a monkey. It it wasn't alive. Oh, it was not. It didn't have the little alive I don't think so. thing on it. No, but um, it's it's funny because they did have the different posters. And some would have a picture of a beautiful bare-chested mermaid. Mm-hmm. And some would have an image of what it really looked like, which was uh, two kind of rotting, mummified <laughs> animals glued together. <laughs> well, it was very famous and very popular. Oft imitated, actually. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like, as soon as people saw it, they were like, oh, I can do that. You know, there's some other famous, like, dime museum gaffes, like the jackalope. Oh, of course. Which is native to Texas. Yeah, just saw one the other day. Me too. A jackalope is a rabbit with deer antlers. My uncle told one once, but then it was eaten by a chupacabra before he could get to it. Your uncle really did kill amazing animals. Let's not go My uncle was a big game hunter. (laughs) Like, in the time where it was, like, not illegal. When I used to go to his house when I was a kid, it was like going probably to P.T. Barnum's museum. And I just absolutely loved it. It was terrible. But it was full of taxidermied animals. Now, this is your great uncle, correct? Right, like your second great uncle. Yeah, there are pictures that I've seen of you there where they're like elephant tusk, and there was a table made out of an elephant foot, and there was like a lion, like a stuffed lion. Mm -hmm. And And I thought it was so cool when I was a kid because it was labeled Simba. Oh, and we grew up in the Lion King generation. Right, which is just the, you know, whatever native language for lion. (laughs) There was this one place that creeped me out, and it was like in the foyer where in the corner, in this dark foyer, he had put up this big jackal, like, looming over. Like, a real jackal? A stuffed jackal. I guarantee you, if that collection's been sold off, you can probably visit Jacob's uncle's ill-gotten gains <laughs> anywhere today, because I bet Dime Museum snapped him up. You know, he had other things like unicorns. Oh, unicorns. It sounds magical. What was it? It was just like a heart or a goat or something with a, a horn stuck on. Well, there was a living unicorn where they cut off one of the goat's horns. There were also a plethora of faked mummies of all flavors and persuasions. Those were very easy to gaff or make and were popular with sideshows and haunted houses, etc. Sometimes other dime museums and Barnum would have human gaffs. And so one that was popular not at Barnum's museum were Siamese twins. And they would mm. just take two twins put them in a dress that made them look like they were attached to the hip. Uh-huh. But Barnum had on display at some points of time the true, real, where the term comes from, Siamese twins. Oh, I know this story. This is a Chang and Ng bunker. Now, they were joined at the hip, literally, weren't they? True. And they were from Siam, Siam yeah. or Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so they were found by a captain like a trader in Siam. Um, and he actually managed them for a long period of time. And um, they eventually took over their own management. They made a ton of money mm-hmm. doing this. Enough to where they could 
buy a plantation in the Carolinas. That being said, this was in the 1860s. You know what happened in the 1860s? Oh, the Civil War. Yeah, so they kind of moved away from that. <laughs> and that's when they came out of retirement and went back on the road under Barnum's management. A wax cast that was made of them at the time of their death is on display in the Mütter Museum in Pennsylvania. Right, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. The Mütter Museum is an amazing museum of medical oddities in Philadelphia that is almost, in a way remotely linked to dime museums although it really was taken as a much more scientific approach it still displayed these kind of oddities and freaks of nature quotation marks for people to see and you can still visit this museum by the way a great book about the great surgeon muter is dr muter's marvels uh written by a fellow austinite and i've actually seen on display at my local coffee shop of choice that it was mostly composed at Epoch Coffee. So, yay Epoch and yay Dr. Muter. I would highly recommend it. It is probably my favorite nonfiction book that I have read this year and I read probably two books a week. So, that's saying a lot. But he had other sorts of people and human oddities, what we called freaks at this time. Um, at his museum. Now, some of these people were just people from foreign lands, mm-hmm. or people he claimed were from foreign lands, such as the Circassian woman. Right. Um, Zaluma Agra, the star of the East. And according to Barnum, she was uh, rescued from a slave market in Constantinople. Yeah. Meh. Yeah. But you know what? She really spoke really good English. Meh. And didn't really know much about Turkey. Yeah, But this actually became a staple of sideshows and of dime museums, the Circassian beauty, the true origin of the Caucasian race. And they were supposedly the most beautiful women and sought after for harems in the East, Ah, or the mystical East. And these women were usually fair-skinned or fairer-skinned, but they had, like, very textured hair. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know I, like, I what the lineage is. Yeah, I looked yeah. into this because I thought it was so weird. <laughs> and I cannot find an explanation for that. Numerous, numerous people. Giantesses. Bearded ladies. Dwarves. Oh, Tom Thumb. Tom Thumb was a big thing for P.T. Barnum. <laughs> Tom Thumb was someone that you can assume had hypochondroplasia, a dwarf. And he was extremely popular even meeting the Queen of England. Yes, and P.T. Barnum being the showboater he was tacked on General to Tom Thumb's name. Why not? Why not? General Tom Thumb. He was a staple at the museum. Like, he was one of the things you have to talk about. And also, among P.T. Barnum's menagerie-o people, menagerie-o the exploited, was, at one point, the Fox Sisters. That sounds familiar. Yeah, the famous girl mediums that kind of shepherded in the spiritualism craze in America. Again, for more information on the Fox Sisters, please see episode Ouija. Some of these people were touring. They would come in for short periods of time, and some actually lived there. Mm-hmm. He had apartments on the third floor. Mm. And so the Circassian uh, woman lived there, uh, one of the giantesses. But sadly, this all came to an end on July 13th, 1865. There are some scenes from history that are horrible that I cannot 
help but try to picture in my mind. Like when I think about true tragedies, there aren't many that I go like, I would have to see that. But P.T. Barnum's American Museum Fire. And there are some great illustrations from the time period of this happening. One of my favorites is Harper's Ferry. has an illustration of all the animals that just running out of the museum with fire behind them. And you can read the original New York Times coverage of it. You can pull it up on the site. And there are some great quotes from it from the firefighters. And they rushed in, saving all the people. No people died in this fire, which is amazing because there were so many people there. Knowing there were apartments, they rushed in and rescued the Circassian woman and the giantess who were in the dressing room. There was also another firefighter, and they were trying to save as much as they could from the museum. And he had Jefferson Davis in his dress (laughs) that he was trying to rescue. And... Eventually threw it out of the window for the waiting firefighters below to catch. But the crowd that was massed around this fire got it. Ended up beating it and hanging it. And now we Google effigy. And there are reports of, like, elephants being loose on Broadway and all this, like, and cannot even get my mind around what it must have looked like. Because there really were animals rushing the streets, just running wild. And, these... and he, had, he had a big collection of monkeys. I didn't mention that. And the monkeys ran wild. It was very Planet of the Apes. So after this, he did decide that he was going to do it again. Okay. This was a huge success. He was going to build another museum. Mm-hmm. This time it'd be fireproof. I don't think he actually built a fireproof museum. Because guess what happened to it? No. It burned down. Oh. Bad luck. Or but- fate. Or someone's trying to send you a message. One of the two. <laughs> well, he was involved in several... Um, scandals related to the civil war well he was a staunch unionist so the people from the south hated him mm-hmm. new york was a very divided city at that time and he was always threatened but also whenever lincoln's train passed by the museum in new york he did not close the museum this was seen as great disrespect wait like living lincoln or lincoln in the after the, the funeral okay yeah. so like when the body was touring america exactly. and so after his second museum burned down he decided that he would lease a train depot and call it barnum's monster classical and geological hippodrome and this would later become the first madison square garden oh wow so this is very american like i mean it's called the american museum at first and then we start seeing political cartoons and kind of this melting pot feel. And then it becomes Madison Square Garden, which is still an institution of entertainment to this day. And I'm thinking this is pretty linked with history. Right. Besides just going on to really form the modern three ring circus mm-hmm. with James Anthony Billy and then joining with the Ringling Brothers, a lot of people really cite the museum as a real melting pot. It didn't just, like, entertain and educate people. Educate in quotes. (laughs) It really supported the expanding arena of antebellum public life. Showed, like we talked about, the nation's changing political atmosphere. And was somewhere where people of any race, class, ethnicity, income could go. It provided a public space that allowed intermingling of all these different people. The things he displayed became known around the country and even around the world. As I was thinking on this, I was thinking that this might have been the original house of memes. Memes? Memes are like like 10 years old. It's like a picture of a cute cat with a funny caption on it. 
Yeah, an impact bullfinch. No, it's actually not. The term dates to back around the 1800s, and it is a psychological, anthropological, just basically any soft science term that refers to a unit of cultural transmission that's akin to a gene. Well, so a gene is something that's passed on to offspring. So some of the examples of what a meme can be are the tune of a song, or a catchphrase, or clothing fashion, fads, the way arches were suddenly popular in buildings and things like that. Like when people find a more efficient way of doing things or an innovative way of doing things, it's transported very quickly across culture. Uh, It's also how we hand down traditions such as, you know, we eat three times a day. It's akin to mimicry. We give our culture to our offspring through memes. We never directly explain why we do a lot of these things but they know about holidays or they know about you know singing along to the radio or chewing gum or whatever it is through watching and acquiring these cultural transmissions yeah so it's like a way of explaining how that transmits right so if you look at the modern use of meme which is the cute cat photo with the caption in white impact font we're distilling complex ideas down to the most basic unit of cultural transmission and there's something about barnum's museum that really makes me associate it with that kind of cultural transmission these are very basic things like the entire civil war wrapped up in this wax figure of jefferson davis in a dress we're humiliating the south we're saying look what they did look how silly they are and we're encapsulating this entire idea in this one item so like taking the complex idea of of the different racial political sociological gender differences that are very prevalent in society and encapsulating it in a guy in a dress and it's something that's very sticky very easy to explain and transmits very quickly is readily understood and therefore transmits very quickly. And you see, like, Barnum is a pioneer of the catchphrase and titling acts and billing acts. You have a bearded lady, which makes you question things about gender. And it combines the classical image of a woman with this giant beard, a symbol of a man, and makes people begin to question that barrier. You have savages on stage, you know, showing their humanity in a way. And you're exposing people to these radically different versions of culture and humanity in ways that they can digest, repeat, and pass on to others. And even learn from. Ironically, yes. So maybe there was more education than we want to say there was. Right, it's without a doubt this edutainment, as it's now known as like infotainment, side note, EC Comics which is where your classic horror comics come from, like Tales of the Crypt, actually started as an edutainment comic where they would do different historical stories and biblical stories. Didn't sell too well. They decided to do really graphic stuff. That's where the comic code comes from. Yay, comic code. No, just kidding. Not yay, comic code at all. Anyway. We'll talk about Wortham one day. Oh. And actually, Wonder Woman had a lot of edutainment included as well. It had a lot of profiles of famous female historical figures including Susan B. Anthony who was related to Marsden, the creator of Wonder Woman. Well and The Flash always had uh, scientific moments in it and then it's back pages where we talk about different scientific theories and ideas and scientists. 
Yeah, so we've been at this a while, this infotainment business, and now there's a lot of criticism of the way that infotainment has become so prevalent and specialized in the internet age. But you can definitely hone in on what you agree with and believe in and really only hear that. Right, you can filter the things that are presented to you and tailor it specifically to your interests and beliefs. Now that leads to things that would have been presented as human interest stories or editorials in a newspaper where you knew that you were reading opinion in years past becoming canon, becoming fact, I guess, Yeah, and you uh, could, you in a way that just wouldn't have happened in, in years gone by. I think that that is a little bit of a biased approach because you can look at things like yellow journalism, which that really was displayed as real journalism, but it was extremely biased. That was at a moment in time where journalism was sort of in its infancy, and the idea that you could print three papers a day, kind of this round-the-clock news coverage had just been pioneered, and people were not holding themselves to any kind of hard and fast rules. Now, eventually those were instituted, and there was kind of a golden age of journalism as opposed to the yellow age of journalism, in which there were kind of rigorous standards of unbiased opinions. Right, like the AP code. Yeah, I mean like... Journalism ethics. Yeah, things like that really did and do exist in big news outlets. But now that you can tailor what you're reading, you can filter out all those stories. And you think of now as something that knows it's infotainment is something like The Daily Show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Or uh, Last Week with John Oliver. Yeah, The Daily Show. Where you really would learn something from it. You know, plenty of polls showing that most young people get their news coverage from things like The Daily Show. Mm -hmm. But it was obviously satirical, obviously entertaining. But the scary thing is, is that other around-the-clock news channels, and not just pointing at Fox News, although I like to, you can really point at all of them, Mm -hmm. extremely biased. Right, and you can choose, like, I, if I had to watch MSNBC or Fox News, which are both incredibly biased in different directions, I'm not going to watch Fox News unless I'm at my parents' house and then I have to. John Stewart has interesting thoughts on this. He said that the press can hold its magnifying glass up to our problems, illuminating issues heretofore unseen, or they can use that magnifying glass to light ants on fire. And then, perhaps, host a week of shows on the sudden, unexpected, dangerous, flaming ant epidemic. Yes, you can see how infotainment has evolved over the years. But another interesting part of these dime museums, sideshows, that P.T. Barnum and others were really critical in starting was the display of these oddities, these freaks of nature, these what I would call just medical curiosities. Back in the day, when I was but a wee lass and I was in college, I read an article called The Politics of Staring by Garland Thompson. And I remembered it all these years later. And it discusses how the way we look at people with disabilities is influenced by the media and the ways in which they've been presented to us over time. It sort of breaks down the different ways that we're instructed to view people with disabilities and how it combats our natural urge to look at people who are different from us, which is a naturally anxiety-inducing experience for both the onlooker and the person who is markably different. She lists several different ways in which we can view things. 
and ways that have really have evolved over time. And there are two that really play into this, play into the oddities that are displayed in these museums. So one of them is the wondrous. We can look at them and say, oh, how marvelous, oh, how different, oh, how unique. And a lot of that comes from this sort of spiritual, supernatural, very old school view of disability as an augury or a negative omen or a mark of distinction. And that can represent either good or evil. In this way, we're really having awe or amazement at these people, such as they would have people that were the living torso, mm-hmm. um, where she would you know, not have any arms or legs. And her imagery that was always publicized was what she could do without these arms or legs. So she would have something like needlepoint done, or she was somehow able to do these beautiful little works of needlepoint without any arms or legs. Right, and I do needlepoint and I have two hands and I am very impressed. Right, it makes us look at ourselves. It makes us say, I can't do that with arms and legs. Or armless man that can do calligraphy with his feet. And you look at your own toes and you say, this man can do this. I can barely walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, it almost becomes a sort of superpower, right? They can do more than I can do, and they don't have the same hardware. So fusing the ordinary with the extraordinary in these images and making these people amazing. So that kind of coaches us to understand impairment as the exception, and as an okay exception. Yeah, think about some of the Paralympic athletes. Unfortunately, the only name that is coming to mind right now is Oscar Pistorius, and he's probably not the best example because he killed his girlfriend, but you know, whatever. These athletes that are like double amputees like him that can run faster than men with legs, we still elevate. It's evolved to an admiration along with the amazing. So you can think of like the documentary Murderball. Another way she discusses viewing people with disabilities is the exotic. And this was definitely used at the time, such as the monkey woman. And this was something where it really domesticates these figures with disabilities, making it familiar and comforting instead of something that's shocking or scary. And maybe that's something that was happening with like the the savages, and I'm doing scare quotes. For sure. That were put on stage at the Barnum Museum and things like that. You know, you do have people saying like, it's okay, they're not going to eat your liver. You can see in the modern interpretation of this is having like disabled models. Uh, there's a really interesting photograph actually featured in the article of a model who's absolutely gorgeous. And she's a double amputee from the knee down. She's featured in this photograph as sort of a bionic woman, and she looks pristinely beautiful. And there's something about the idea that she can be even more perfect, and it's like the next step in evolution that's present there. And I think that's very interesting. So we wanted to talk to you about dime museums today because we are starting a little project. And by a little project, I mean we've got like 175 million hours of work in it, but a little project called Audio Dime Museum. And this is normally the part of the show where we ask if what we've just spent an hour talking about is just a story. And I don't know if you all have realized it, but our title's a little ironic. Right, because we always talk about stories, but then we talk about what they really mean, how they really reflect on our human nature, how they reflect on our culture, and how they reflect on who we are. 
Stories tell us so much more than they're telling us. There's the latent content. It's kind of like a dream, as Freud would say. But there's the latent content. There's what's actually being said. And then there are the things that it's telling you about the audience. There are the things that it's telling you about the teller. There are the things that it's telling you about the culture that it comes from. There are things that it tells you about yourself, how you interpret that story. And so in Audio Dime Museum, we take a look at historical facts or very well-established legends that exist in association with a specific place or object. And we explore the stories that these objects have to tell us. Right, and what they can say about, as we always say, are myths, misdeeds. Fears and fables. And what they say about us as humans and how we interpret that. And that it's not just a story. Just a story in and of itself is sort of a misnomer because stories are everything they're all we leave behind really and occasionally rarely there will be some physical artifact and those are all going to be housed at the audio dime museum and now we'll leave you with our prologue to our story and an introduction to the dime museum and to hear the actual stories just move over to our audio dime museum feed we'll put a link in this information or you can just search audio dime museum and find it we'd really appreciate any ratings or reviews and letting people know if you like it and let us know what you think of it i would love for y'all to write some feedback you can email us directly shout out on twitter whatever you're comfortable with but we would love to hear so without further ado please step inside the audio dime museum Hello? Hello? Hmm? Oh, no. No, I'm sorry. Um, that's... That address is just down the street. Mm-hmm. If you, if you cross to the other side and go just, like, two or three doors down, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Good luck. Well, wait, just wait one... Please don't go. <laughs> I know, it, it's... It looks a little overwhelming, but I've been collecting these things. No one remembers when I started collecting these things. I'm surprised you found this. No one ever finds this anymore. We used to be everywhere. Every corner for time. See the wonders of the world for time. You could step inside and, and float away to places that hadn't even been imagined yet. Now everything's been found. There's, there's so little mystery left, so little curiosity. Uh, and here, here, some people turn and leave as soon as they've come in the door. This just isn't for them. Some people get scared, and some people just don't want to believe. But then, some people are like you. Some people are brought here to our devilish little mystery. We keep lots of little mysteries. Everything here has a story. Every little thing. Nothing was brought in by accident or happenstance. No, we search for these things. Before, before I was just 
and I. We cobbled them together on little black shelves and built displays and set lights and light candles. And outside we stood a barker, hoping that someone like you would walk by and he'd catch their ear and tell them that they would never believe it unless they saw it with their own eyes. He's long gone now. But here you are. Here you are. He came just to see us. But you wouldn't be interested in the regular tour, would you? I know who you are. I've seen you before, and they told me that you'd come looking for the stories that have become artifacts, curious little beacons of truth. They're here, you know, those kinds of things, but not on the main floor. If you want to see those, you'll have to follow me. Come see. I'll light a candle for you. Here's a match. Ow! <laughs> Ow! I always do that. Here. You take it. Come on, this way. Just through this door here. This is a rogues gallery. Do you know what a rogues gallery is? Never mind. We'll come back. We'll keep going. We'll come back. Just down these stairs. Oh, watch your head. Okay. Sorry. It's just down the hall. Here we are. This is my private collection. Now, I know it's not as pristinely curated as the rest of the museum. Just stacks of boxes. But you never know what's in a box. That's how we love them so much. The mystery. Think of Christmas presents. Or that locked trunk in your grandmother's attic. Or Pandora. We just have to know what's inside. And what's inside these is beyond what you might dare imagine. Now, some of them hold monsters, to be sure. All the evils of the world. But... If we can keep from being frightened, we might find that hope is hiding in the darkest corners. Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've taken too much of your time. You need to go? Right. Yeah, it's just three doors down and across the street. Mm hmm? N no, you shouldn't miss your appointment. Before you go, if you come back, promise... I will find the perfect story to show you.